Jodcast. Today's specials, French Orion Soup and Sausage and Mastroid. With Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jodcast. November 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen and joining me today are Libby, Christina and new Jogcaster Stuart. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. So Stuart, I think we're either going to have to give you a nickname or we're going to have to never refer to Stuart Lowe by his name and instead always call him the Jodfather. So I don't know if you have a preference. The Jodfather. The Jodfather. Okay, so you are now Stuart. Stuart Lowe is now the Jodfather forever. Cool. Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? What What are you doing? Okay, uh, yeah, so my PhD is uh, working on a telescope out in Tenerife, um, which is mostly a cosmology experiment, but I've got nothing to do with cosmology. I'm just studying the foregrounds and sort of trying to help them out. So that's, foregrounds are just everything in front of the CMB that cosmologists want to get rid of? Yeah, so basically, you know, all the dust, the galaxies, stars, all those sort of things, get rid of that so they can actually look at the interesting bit. Are you going to look at the bit you're trying to get rid of, or are you just getting rid of it? Um, well, I don't really know right now. <laughs> I might look at it, but it depends how hard it is to get rid of it. Cool, let's stop interrogating Stuart. Maybe we should interview <laughs> you at a later date. Mm. Okay, we've got a few things before we get on to the main show. The email in Road Trip video is finally out on our website. Yay! Woohoo! So this was recorded back in August 2010. And we visited all the seven telescopes in the Merlin Array, e-Merlin as it now is. And so you can watch it on the website and on YouTube. And you can watch my highs and lows as I consume an unbranded energy drink. We don't do product placement on the Jogcast. (laughs) It was a rather epic road trip. Lots and lots of fun. I'm very sad it was before my time. It was fun. And also the radio astronomy video with Tim is also on the website if anyone hasn't seen that yet, so you can go and check that out. Also, hello to everyone we met at Jodpub London at the weekend. Yay! Hello, guys, again. That was really fun. Um, Thank you to the Royal Observatory Greenwich and Merrick Cooler in particular for letting some of the Jodcasters in for free. We had lots of fun. Libby was running around London like an excited young child. But it was brilliant. It was full of astronomy goodness and space history. Yay! Yeah, I can't believe it was the first time that we've been. No, neither can I. I. I definitely loved all of it. Just all the difference in the meridian and all the stories of the astronomer royals. Yeah. I was wondering whether Martin Rees gets to go and claim those bedrooms if he turns up. I assume not. I imagine those beds are kind of creaky and old. <laughs> but that was lots of fun. So yay, Job Pub London. Woo! And finally... I'd like to say congratulations to Reesey Pie for winning the space quiz at Spectacular in the Manchester Science Festival. And there was quite a few jogcasters in the audience who didn't get as... Well... Kind of didn't do very well. No, no. not at all. <laughs> um, um, so, yay, go Greasy Pie for winning the quiz. With and... all the information we gave you on the job <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. So in the show this time, Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your questions, and we have interviews on black holes of all different sizes. But first, before all of that, Stuart and I talked to Dr. Silke Britston about a recent black hole meeting here in Manchester. Today, Stuart and I are talking to Dr. Silke Britson from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. Welcome to the Jogcast. Oh, welcome. So, could you tell us a little bit about the meeting we're at today? Yes, sure. So, the meeting is um, a working group meeting within a cost 
action cost is uh, financed by the European Union and it uh, supports scientific networking in Europe. And the idea behind, we developed this uh, two years ago, um, is to bring black hole scientists all over Europe together um, because we realized that the scientists are working in different fields of black hole science, like on the small, tiny black holes, the quantum black holes, the stellar black holes, the uh, galactic center black hole, which has roughly 4 million solar masses, or the supermassive black holes, the big monsters in our universe with millions to billions of solar masses. And we realized that all of these sci scientists are working on very interesting subjects, but they are not really working together. So our idea was to bring all of these scientists together and to uh, support that they communicate with each other and uh, in the end work towards a better understanding of the general phenomenon of black holes. So even though the masses that we're talking about are very different, the physics is quite similar? Yes, um, we think that the physics in principle is similar. There are differences, of course. If you consider a quantum black hole or a supermassive black hole, um, so they um, different um, physics and different environments, different physical questions uh, are yeah, concerned with this. So, for example, if you think about a supermassive black hole, which is probably in most of the bright galaxies in our universe, so the galaxies and the black holes are evolving together uh, while the quantum black holes they have um, not been detected so far they might be created at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva but this is a very speculative part of the theory although it would tell us a lot about the physics in our universe but so these are different fields different uh, physical questions connected to them but all of them are very exciting and I think we can learn a lot by talking to each other learn about the physics uh, about the different properties parameters of black holes and yeah it's an exciting field okay so um, you've talked a lot about how cost is bringing together all the different fields of black holes physics so but what particular area do you focus on? Um, my favorite black holes are the supermassive black holes, so the really massive ones. And I'm interested in the phenomenon of merging galaxies, merging black holes, and yeah, what happens if there are two black holes in one galaxy? If they merge, what happens? And how can I find these objects? We think that these emerging supermassive black holes uh, produce the most important gravitational wave signal in the universe. Gravitational waves have not been detected directly so far. Um, scientists are working on this and some of our colleagues are here as well. Um, so I'm interested in finding the candidates for these uh, gravitational wave signals and um, I'm trying to find them by looking at the plasma jets of black holes, of supermassive black holes. Um. You're saying about, you were saying about uh, mergers of supermassive black holes. So does that mean you can get some galaxies actually have binary or two supermassive black holes right in the centre of the galaxy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the idea. So um, um, mergers of galaxies. This is an important scenario in our universe. So um, if you look into our universe, you probably know the Antenna Galaxy. So this is the result of a merger of two galaxies. And this happens all over cosmic times. This is a way galaxies grow and also black holes grow by mergers of galaxies. And if you have a black hole in all of these galaxies, if two galaxies merge, you produce a binary supermassive black hole. And um, yeah, they can uh, 
approach closer to each other and in the end merge. So this is a way you can grow supermassive black holes from tinier black holes by accretion and by these merging processes. These supermassive black holes in the centre of our galaxies, uh, are they, um, how long do they take to form exactly? Do they form near the beginning of the universe or do we, or were they a more recent phenomenon that has just yeah. grown yeah. from mergers of galaxies? And yeah. yeah, that's a very good question. And unfortunately, uh, we do not really know how the supermassive black holes were really a bond, so to say. So this was one of the topics in the conference today. How do you produce the supermassive black holes? You have to produce them early in the universe. They are very old. So um, we think they were produced very early and they have grown through cosmic time. So today we heard a talk that they might have grown out of a super cloud. So two galaxies in the beginning of our universe merging, producing a super cloud, and this super cloud then collapses into a black hole which would then grow again by accreting material or by galaxy mergers or whatever. So um, this is still a question, um, and this is very tricky, because we know roughly how old our universe is. We can see black holes, supermassive black holes, early in the universe. Uh, so the question is, how did they form that quickly? So this is a really tricky question, but it's, uh, yeah, many scientists are working on this at the moment. I think we better let you get back to your coffee break. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that, student Jen. The next interview is an interview with Professor Lucio Mayer. That was done with me and Libby, and we apologise for the noise in the background. We had a lot of people walking in and out. We do apologise. Joining us today on the Jodcast is Professor Lucio Mayer from the University of Zurich, and he's been giving a talk about the formation of supermassive black holes. So, first of all, what is a supermassive black hole? Okay, so that's a good question. It's a starting place for our discussion. So, a supermassive black hole uh, is a black hole that has a mass corresponding to millions or even billions of suns. So, they are really enormous in mass, but because they are black holes, they are extremely small, you know, the matter is concentrated in a very small region. And they live at the center of galaxies. That's at least what we think. The reason why we think that they exist is because uh, we observe emission uh, uh, in a very high uh, energetic component of uh, light, which we call X-rays, which we don't see actually, but they are part of the extension of light at very high energy. Uh, and we think that this emission in this energetic photons comes from matter that is accreting onto these black holes. So that's why we postulate that they exist. We don't really see them because they're black holes. Can you briefly explain what accreting is? Accreting it basically means that you have a black hole, uh, and, and, and this is a lot of mass in a small region of space, and because of that it has a strong gravitational field, so gravity is very strong around the black hole, and this pulls the matter towards it. And essentially what it does, it eats really the matter, and when, once it goes inside the black hole, it disappears because no light can be seen. Do these exist in, in every galaxy, or just... Some galaxies, or...? We still don't know it, actually. We think that they exist in every big galaxy, so big like our galaxy or even bigger. And for the smaller galaxies, we don't really know. Uh, it's unclear whether they are still existing even in galaxies that are ten times smaller than our galaxy. So how, how do these black holes come to be at the centre of galaxies? Yeah. What makes them be found there? 
Yeah, this is what we what we really don't know. So in order to answer this question, you really have to understand how they form, essentially, right? And also you want to understand how they form uh, together with the galaxies, okay? So the idea would be to start from the very beginning of the universe and being able to see both the emergence of galaxies and of these black holes at the same time. Unfortunately, this is not possible with the theory that we can uh, develop today. Uh, we can come close to it by using models on big computers, and that's what we do most of the time. Actually, that's what my research is focusing on. And so we start from some assumptions of the state of the universe at the very beginning, uh, and the assumption is that everything is dominated by an unseen component of matter, which we call dark matter. We don't see it, but we know that it exists, because in galaxies we know that there is a lot of mass that we don't see. And then we, we try to see whether there is a way to take uh, normal matter, which is you know the matter from which we are made, atoms and molecules, and push it to a very small radius uh, so that you make uh, a black hole. And you want to put a lot of matter into a very small region because you want to have a big black hole, a supermassive black hole. And so the, the, the model that we have developed uh, uh, is based on this idea that at the very beginning of the universe, when you had the first galaxies that were born at the time, uh, which were already similar to our Milky Way, but they were much denser because the universe was much smaller. And so everything was denser at the time. Uh, they started colliding because the universe was very dense. It was easy for each galaxy to encounter another galaxy. And so by colliding, uh, in these collisions, what happens is the matter gets compressed to a very high density. And it typically gets compressed at the center because that's where you have the highest density, even in galaxies today, that's true. And so by compressing this matter at very high density, we showed uh, in a work that we published last year that you can actually get a cloud of dense matter which is very close to the state at which you expect the collapse to produce a black hole. We didn't show that yet. That's the future. We have to really show that it collapses into a black hole. But it's really hard to think that it would not do it because there's nothing so dense that we know and has not become a black hole. Um, so you're using computer simulations to model galaxies at the early stages of the universe when there are um, lots of galaxies close together. And so they collide and they produce these massive clouds yeah. um, which condense into a black hole. Now, do they condense into just kind of normal black holes or supermassive black holes? No, we think they collapse into supermassive black holes because they are huge. You know, these clouds contain typically 10 million or even 100 million times the mass of the sun. And a stellar mass black hole instead is as massive as the sun or slightly more massive than that. So it's a completely different type of object that we expect will be at the end state of the collapse. But the final stage of the collapse is still to be simulated in the future. Is currently at the limits of the capabilities that we have because we need to include corrections uh, due to the theory of general relativity. Uh, these are possible to be included. Actually, there are modelers who work on that specific aspect. But what is still missing is a computer code that can actually join what we do on large scales with these relativistic effects uh, on small scales. And that's basically the, the future development of, the, of this particular problem. Is it the merging of the two galaxies that produce enough matter in the core of these galaxies to aid the collapse, or is the merging process itself also contributing to possible collapse of the black hole? Well, it's it's a bit of both in a sense. So it's it's because you know the the galaxies that merged at the time in the early universe they had a lot of 
uh, matter uh, at high densities by themselves. But then because they merge, uh, during the merger, uh, what happens is that this matter, we say in our technical jargon, loses angular momentum. What it means is that essentially it starts uh, to sink towards the center uh, because uh, it doesn't have enough rotation to keep it at large distances, right? It's like if you some suddenly were uh, changing the state of the solar system, for example, you know, you were, imagine you somehow extract some uh, uh, velocity from the velocity of each planet, you know, extract some portion of it, what will happen is the planet will fall towards the sun. So it's the same effect that we see in galaxy mergers, basically. When you're actually observing or trying to observe um, these supermassive black holes, what allows you to identify them as being supermassive rather than stellar mass? It's because, uh, as I said before, since all black holes, both the small ones, the stellar mass and these big ones, they are detected indirectly, not because they're seen, of course, but because we see emission in a region of a galaxy in these X-rays, what you can de determine is how much of this emission. So essentially, how much energy you have that you can measure. And the energy levels of the supermassive black holes are many, many, many times higher than the energy levels of normal mass black hole. The energy level is related to the mass. We know how to link them. And this is really standard physics, if you want. There's nothing very difficult about that. It's been known for 50 years. So we know that if you have a certain energy, that corresponds to a certain mass. And that's how we know that the masses of these big black holes are very big. Okay. So the higher mass black holes emit... Much, yeah. Much, yeah. Okay. Many, many orders of magnitude, we say in, in the jargon, higher than the luminosity of a standard black hole. So we see some supermassive black holes that are smaller than some of the most massive supermassive black holes so that's a 10 to the 10 is the biggest that i think can form yes yes why is there a limit and also can you explain the range in sizes the range the in, in the masses that we see well yeah so th this is a good question uh we, from our model what we know for sure now is that we can produce uh, a very big black hole uh, the, the clouds that we produce uh, that are going to collapse uh, further uh, they are typically um, a hundred times uh, more massive than the black hole that lives in our galaxy, which is relatively small as a supermassive black hole. But whether they will produce a black hole of a million solar mass over a hundred million solar masses, it depends on processes that will happen inside the cloud, in which we don't model yet. You, c you can imagine many processes for, uh, that may change the, fact, the final mass of the black hole compared to the initial mass of the cloud. For example, you can imagine that at some point in the very center uh, of the cloud, uh, nuclear, nuclear burning uh, begins, like in a star, essentially. So this would raise the temperature of the inner region of the cloud a lot and would temporarily stop the collapse. And so this might actually produce a black hole that is smaller than the total mass of the cloud. And all these things we, we still have to understand. So it, it is in principle possible that starting from the same cloud, depending on the small scale processes that we don't model yet, you might actually get a range of masses of the final black hole. This is something that we have to understand. Plus, once you've once you made it, the black hole, because will continue to live as the galaxies evolve, it will continue to accrete mass, the mass that will fall at the center from another collision with another galaxy, it may become bigger. So even if you start with a million solar masses, it may become 100 million. For, for example, you could imagine that 
the galaxies that have this uh, uh, process of the formation earlier, they might end up producing the bigger black holes by the time we look at them today. And the ones that have it later, they don't have enough time to grow it at a certain stage. Um, I have a question about um, the collapse of the, the clouds. What stops them producing a star rather than a, a black hole? So uh, this is, uh, again, uh, 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 something that we still have uh, to really determine in the modeling because it is still possible that uh, at, uh, inside the cloud a portion of it might ignite and you know uh, activate nuclear processes, and so you might have a temporary state of a star. But because the cloud is so massive, it's clear that the gravity of the entire cloud will win over any pressure that you can build up at the center. So you might have a temporary star. This is possible, and we cannot exclude it at the moment. But it won't last more, we think, than a million years, which in uh, astrophysical timescales is really nothing compared to the age of the universe. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for being on the Jodcast and um, coping with all the people opening doors while we're trying to interview yes. you. <laughs> well, thank you for interviewing me. I hope it was interesting. It definitely thank was. Thank very much. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Christina and Libby. The next people to talk is Liz and Mark, and they're going to be interviewing Philip Podsielowski about ultra-luminous X-ray sources. Hello. We're here in the Black Holes in a Balloon Universe conference in Jodlbank, Center for Astrophysics. And we're here with Filip Potzilowski. He gave a talk yesterday, a really interesting talk, about ultraluminous X-ray sources. So could you explain us a little bit about these sources? Yes. I mean, these ultraluminous X-ray sources are very bright X-ray sources, and they're much brighter than the normal X-ray sources we know in our galaxy. I mean, in, in our galaxy, we have about... 100 X-ray sources, and they're all so-called X-ray binaries. And these are st systems where you have a star transferring mass to a compact object. The compact object is usually a black hole or a neutron star, and that releases a lot of gravitational energy, and that is seen in X-rays. But there's a certain maximum luminosity one observes, which is called the Eddington limit, because when star sources reach that luminosity, then the radiation pressure stops any accretion. And so we don't expect sources to be more luminous than the Eddington limit. But these ultra-luminous X-ray sources are much more luminous than what you would get if you had, let's say, a 10 solar mass black hole, as is typically in our galaxy. And that makes these systems very unusual. And one of the ideas is that perhaps these are not systems like in our galaxies containing a 10 solar mass black hole, but a much more massive black hole, a so-called intermediate mass black hole might have a mass of 100 or perhaps even 100,000 times the mass of the Sun. So if they're intermediate mass, obviously we've got kind of what we would regard as maybe small black holes and then the very massive ones. Why are these intermediate mass black holes particularly interesting? Well, one of the big questions is how do you actually form these very supermassive black holes? Like in our galaxy, at the center of our galaxy, we have a black hole that's 4 million times the mass of the Sun. But how did it actually get there? And this is one of the big un unknowns and was at the center of many of the talks at this meeting. And one idea, of course, is that you start with smaller black holes and they then somehow merge, building up intermediate mass black holes and ultimately these very massive black holes at the centers of galaxies. So do you find these ultra-luminous X-ray sources, do you find them everywhere in all the galaxies or where do you find them? Well, they are not actually very common. 
In a typical galaxy like ours, you might expect perhaps one or two, not more than that. But they're very common in galaxies that form a lot of young stars. There are, for example, the Antennae galaxies, where you have two galaxies colliding, and that produces a lot of star formation. And, and you see many of these ultraluminous exosaurs associated with this, these bursts of star formation. So you don't, you don't see them in elliptical galaxies? You don't see the bright ones in elliptical galaxies at all, yes. But the very fact that you see them associated with massive stars suggests that they might not be intermediate mass black holes, but just more extreme versions of the normal stellar mass black holes which we see in our galaxy. And this is what I talked about yesterday. So how do you try to calculate the mass of the black <coughs> hole or, or, or what makes us think that, in fact, all the X-ray emission is the result of a black hole? Now, in our own galaxy, you can these are X-ray binaries, and you can measure the radial velocity curve, the Doppler shift produced by the companion star, and there you can measure the mass dynamically. And so we know that there are black holes of around 10 solar masses in our galaxy. Now, in these, you can't, and so the argument is more indirect. It's just based on the fact that they are more luminous than you think would be possible if the adding limit was obeyed. How do they um, get around the Eddington limit? I mean, it's this sort of idea that all the radiation that's coming out, all the energy, would actually push away any further matter. So how, how can it sort of get past that barrier? Now, the basic assumption in that limit is that the accretion onto the black hole is spherically symmetric, so that the radiation exactly opposes the gravitational attraction. But in these X-ray binaries, that's not the case, because usually you create through a disk. And that already allows to violate the editing limit, because you can accrete in one direction and radiate in another direction. But that, that doesn't help you a lot. It, uh, it helps you a little bit. But the other ideas of how you can do this, and one is called a photon bubble. And the idea is that if you have magnetic fields, then you can squeeze the radiation out of the matter and form bubbles of photons that then can es escape easily. So that requires magnetic fields, and it's not clear whether this mechanism works, but it's certainly a way of how you could, in principle, violate the adding limit, perhaps by a factor of 10 or so. Probably not a factor of 100. So you couldn't still form really supermassive black holes with this concept? Well, not from these systems, no. And indeed, what, what we showed is that these systems are consistent with, probably consistent with the normal stellar mass black holes. And we showed this by doing binary calculations, where we calculate how much mass is transferred from a massive star to the black hole. And the mass transfer rates are very high. They're high enough to power the observed luminosities and for a long time, provided you can beat the adding limit. Right. So there's no real problem from a cell evolution point of view, explaining all these ultra-luminous systems in um, star-forming galaxies. And do you also observe them, because, I mean, they really ultra-luminous in X-rays, do they also have uh, another counterpart, like optical or radio or gamma-ray burst or something? Well, that's, that's a good point. Most of them don't. However, if they are binary systems, then they should have a massive companion star, and you should be able to detect them. And there are now about probably about 10 systems where an optical counterpart has been detected. And in all cases, the counterpart is consistent with a massive star. But n now that you have a counterpart, you might in principle even be able to measure the Doppler velocities, and that would be a way to weigh the black hole again. 
But that has not been possible so far. But it's probably something that will happen in the next few years. Do you need like interferometry or? No, no, just just normal spectroscopic observations are fine. The problem is that these are very massy systems. There's a lot of material around, and you don't quite know where the lines you observe actually come from. And that that makes it hard. But technologically, it's, it's not difficult. So if you do have a star in a system with a black hole, let's say 100 solar masses, obviously the black hole may be quite a bit more massive than the star. So where has it acquired its mass from? Do we know? Well, that's a very good question. It's not clear how you form these intermediate mass black holes, actually. One idea is that if you're in a young cluster, and massive stars are usually born in a cluster environment, you might get runaway collisions where young stars, young massive stars merge, and that leads to runaway, and you might produce a supermassive star, which could then produce a fairly massive black hole. However, recent calculations suggest that you may be able to get a star that's perhaps 200 or 300 times the mass of the sun, but not much more than that. But 100 would certainly be possible. And then you, of course, you still need to capture a companion star to make it a, into a binary system. Yes. Um, and then... When we have a black hole like the very supermassive one at the heart of our galaxy, um, do we think that maybe these intermediate black holes are going to end up as part of that? Would they go to the center of the galaxy or will they just continue orbiting around and, re and remain isolated from it? I mean, the, most of the systems which we are talking about are very far from the, galactic, from the center of the galaxy and they will stay there. But when you have collisions, for example, between galaxies, and each, if each of these galaxies has a black hole in the center, then the black holes may also merge. And this is one of the ways of how you may be able to build up supermassive black holes. But they're not related to most of the systems which, which we have been talking about. But they should also exist. Do you also get ultra-luminous X-rays from the center of a galaxy or no? In... Most so-called so active galactic nuclei, the accretion rates are believed to be significantly below the adding limit. But there may be some systems where the, the luminosity exceeds the adding limit, but the problem is in most systems one doesn't actually know the mass. So there may well be analogs, but they would be much more luminous in the centers of galaxies. I think there's emission from the black hole at the center of our galaxy, but it's not particularly um, significant. Yes, it's extremely low. So it's extremely inactive. Okay. Which is good news, I suppose, for us, really. Well, it doesn't matter that much. It's far away. <laughs> it's not It's not too... It's not so. I sometimes imagine if we were in an active galaxy that we would be getting blasted by a dangerous quantity of X-rays. Well, I think that would only be true if we were actually in the direction of the jet from the active galactic nucleus, but otherwise I think it's... Not so dangerous. <laughs> I think gamma bursts are more dangerous. So there's a lot of black holes around, but not not particularly risky for us. Yes, I mean there probably there may be lots and lots of intermediate mass black holes, and we just don't know about them. They may have formed an early stage, perhaps even shortly after the Big Bang, but we wouldn't see them. And if they don't have a companion star or don't accrete gas from some environment, you wouldn't see them. By the talks that we had yesterday as well, um, does this intermediate black hole, will they evaporate as well, or, or do you don't expect no, that? No, they are far too massive. I mean, you need really tiny black holes, like 
the mass of the moon or so. Yeah. Those would be able to evaporate in the lifetime of the universe, but these, well, these will live forever. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the interview. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Liz and Mark. And we will have more interviews from that cost meeting in the next show. So now we move on to the bit in the show where we fit in everything that can't go anywhere else. Well, first of all, um, the Olympic Committee have announced the torch relay route and Jodra Bank is one of the landmarks in the UK that the Olympic flame is going to come to. Um, I'm not entirely sure what exactly it's going to be doing at Jodrell. I really hope they take it up into the dish or like dance around underneath it with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's hope that everyone does a dance at Jodrell Bank with the Olympic torch. (laughs) That would be brilliant if they did. But it's going to be there on the 31st of May and it's then going to go on its merry way on its, I think, 8,000 mile tour around the UK or something like that. And it's visiting loads of famous places, including uh, Loch Ness, Stonehenge, Giant's Causeway, all these other places, and the National Space Science Centre in Leicester, which is where it's going to be on the 3rd of July. So two spacey places in one trip, which is pretty awesome. So I seem to get stuck with, I say stuck, I seem to enjoy rounding up various space mission news, and I've got a few this time. We have talked before about China launching its first uh, space station, the Tiangong-1, that was launched at the end of September. And then I think we've also mentioned that they then launched an unmanned spacecraft, the Shenzhou-8, which was launched on the 1st of November, and it docked with Tiangong-1 on the 3rd of November. What they've then done is they've undocked it and redocked it on the 14th of November just to prove that they can kind of control stuff in space. And that's returning on the 17th of November. I think it's pretty exciting, like new space station. They're going to do a couple more space docking missions next year, and I think they might be sending the first Chinese astronauts to it next year. And then by 2020, they want a manned space station. So maybe there'll be another thing like the ISS in the night sky that we can see. Oh, that'd be awesome. They could wave at each other and people in the ISS and the, and the <laughs> Chinese one when they go past each other. Linking into that, I found on the um, Bad Astronomy blog a video of a time-lapse video which came from the ISS, and it's basically just a video which is going all the way around the Earth in the orbit of the ISS with a high-quality camera. Put to music. So on, it's done by the astronauts on the ISS looking down on us? Yeah, yeah, so it's done by the astronauts, and they're just taking pictures out as they go and link them all together. Still on the subject of the ISS, Russia this morning, which is the 14th of November, they launched the first Soyuz capsule up to the ISS since the last unmanned one crashed in August. So this is the first time the astronauts have been sent to the International Space Station since the space shuttle was retired. So it's two Russians and one American, and they'll be joining the other astronauts up on the ISS until the current crew leave on the 21st of November. This is good because after that Soyuz crash, everyone was a bit worried that the astronauts who were leaving on the 21st of November would leave and then no one else could be launched up there and the ISS would be unmanned for the first time in more than, I think, 10 years. Astronauts have been launched. It was really cool. I saw some photos. They were like almost launching a blizzard. Like, you're looking at it and there was like, all this snowstorm and everything. And the Russians like, yeah, yeah, we can deal with that. Imagine if America tried to launch a space <laughs> shuttle while it was snowing. I just can't imagine snow in Florida. <laughs> no, well, that as well. There's some cool photos on the Universe Today website, so we'll link to those in the show notes. Finally, I have a new story that links in China and Russia. Yay! Dave Alt would be so proud of me. On... 
the 8th slash 9th of November, depending on what time zone you're in, uh, Russia attempted to launch a mission to Mars and to one of Mars's moons called Phobos Grunt. Unfortunately, it launched successfully. It went into Earth orbit for a while, and then a couple of hours into the mission, when the rockets were meant to fire to send it on its way to Mars, they failed. So it's just been kind of hanging out, orbiting the Earth, and Russia seemed to be being quite quiet about this, but all reports I've seen seem to think that it's going to crash down to Earth between a couple of weeks' time and maybe a couple of months, so people are saying December or January. I said it links together China and Russia because it was also carrying China's first Mars satellite, which was riding piggyback on it, so that's quite sad. Aww. They've not had much luck with missions to Mars, have they? No, I didn't realise this. Russia has tried to send 16 missions to Mars since the 1960s, and they haven't been successful with any of them. That's why they're keeping quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. About it. Are they trying to get it to go again? Or are they just sort of being like, well, we tried. (laughs) I don't really know. As I said, they're being quite quiet. Originally, they said it was something to do with um, the spacecraft failing to orientate itself with the stars. And that stopped the rockets from firing. And then they were, I think they were going to try and communicate with it to, to try and get the rockets to fire. At the time, they said it's not a failure. It's a non-standard situation, but it's a working situation. But since then, as far as I know, it's still in Earth orbit. Maybe think something will change before this show goes out, and if it does, then we'll put that on the website. On a more successful Mars mission, the Mars 500 has landed. Yay! Yay! Landed. Landed. (laughs) Well, Libby's doing air quotes. By landed, I mean there were six volunteers, the crew, who were in a mock-up of a mission to Mars, uh, which was run by the European Space Agency, and these six crew... Yeah, what do you call them? Well, I'm going to go for crew. Crew, okay. These six crew um, were in this spacecraft for 520 days, and they faithfully followed all the phases of a real mission to Mars, and highlights included a Mars walk halfway through, where they got to go out, get full, the full um, spacesuits on, and walk around in a sand pit. Um, <laughs> to seem like the Mars environment. Uh, <laughs> no, we're laughing, but this is actually a really serious experiment. And this was successful because previous missions to Mars have been unsuccessful, where the crew have gone a bit crazy. Didn't they give them alcohol? They did give them alcohol, and chaos kind of ensued. This is to see the psychological effects on locking someone away for 500 days they obviously haven't been weightless or anything like that no they weren't weightless and they didn't experience any radiation effects but they were doing real mission experiments throughout the journey they had a delay of 20 minutes with the communications you couldn't just have instantaneous communication with back home and i imagine being stuck in the same small compartment with six other people who you didn't know of all different nationalities is quite an interesting uh, experience probably one which I wouldn't want to do. But well done for these volunteers, and yeah, they're, they're now out, and they're going through a, a mission debriefing, and then they get to go to the beach, which is what some of them were quoted in saying they wanted to do the most. I think that's pretty cool. No, I think that is. I remember when they were asking for volunteers for that, and I thought one of my friends should go for it, but she never did. Not that I wanted to get rid of her for 500 days, <laughs> unless she sounded like a really bad friend, but I thought she'd be really good at it. Well, they say 500 does actually 520 days, yeah. which, which makes all the difference. Well, Mars 520 doesn't sound as cool. No. no. They didn't have to go through training. 
Well, I think they, they must have done because they all had the space jumpsuits on and everything like that. And they also were given real stressful situations like emergencies going wrong with the the spacecraft that she had to cope yeah. with. They tried to make it as realistic as possible. So I don't think they probably went through some form of training to how to operate it so they could deal with these stresses in the space flight. Okay, so as uh, my first um, attempt at an odd and end, I thought I'd go for something nice and serious. And it's uh, a paper I found that's been submitted to a journal in astrobiology. And uh, basically, it's all about these theorists who think they can use optical telescopes to look for extraterrestrials. So it starts off, you know, you're thinking, okay, they must have some pretty good idea what's going on here. So uh, the first idea is they look at planets orbiting other stars. And they can use um, optical telescopes to take like the spectrum of the light coming from planets orbiting these other stars. And uh, they can see if it's like LED light or fluorescent light that's being emitted. And you think, okay, that seems like a pretty good idea. But then they say the main problem with this is that the actual dark side of the planet would need to be as bright as the light side of the planet with synthetic lights for it actually to be possible. Okay. Which is a bit of a problem. But, you know, you don't think it's too crazy yet. But then they go on and start talking about how um, they could use the same technique to look for cities on asteroids in the Kuiper Belt. In our own solar system. In our own, uh, yeah. Our own Why would there be cities in the Kuiper Belt? Well, at first I thought it was like, you know, they're just using that as an example. But then in the conclusions, <laughs> they, they like to point out that actually um, the reason why these cities would be there because, of course, they are. Okay. <laughs> is the, there was, they said that there would be an asteroid that was near the sun when sort of life was um, evolving on it, and it was on a highly elliptical orbit. And um, basically, all life, intelligence, and technology evolved in its small orbit near the sun, somehow. And then it shot out to the Cuba belt, and then they decided they'd build um, cities. <laughs> <laughs> And just, like, always have the lights on so we can see them with our optical telescopes. So are they saying that these are actually living out there or are they old cities that are still glowing? Well, if the lights are on, I assume they must think that things are living in the Cuban belt. Like people, I <laughs> somehow. Just, so, so life evolves while they're near the sun and has to evolve well enough that they can develop some kind of sophisticated... Heating technology. Heating technology, so as they go out further into the solar system, people don't just die. Yeah, okay. yeah, I guess so. so. I think there are too many questions <laughs> for me to process this right now. Why wouldn't they just skip off the asteroid onto Earth? Because Earth is a nice, friendly planet. Well, I well, guess maybe well. that's Maybe that's you know, the answer there. And they just left the lights on. <laughs> As the Cuba belt, went out, as the object went out to the Cuba belt. I'm, I'm gonna move us off this. <laughs> These are really good things. Never mind. No, you don't. You don't. Well, that's not the first time people have really thought about this idea of looking at the spectra from other planets to see about civilizations. Because some, in some spectra of planets, uh, you can have a look for signatures of global warming in the atmosphere. So, if the idea is if a civilization has developed to a sort of stage like our own, then you can see the impact of global warming in the spectra signature of these planets. But you obviously need to be able to get a spectrum of these planets, and we're not talking our solar system here, but kind of they'd have to be quite nearby. We'd have to discover these planets nearby and then take a spectrum of them, and so we need either very sensitive equipment to do that, or really close by planet, which we haven't found yet to test this. But that is one theory of where you can find out life on other planets is by looking to see if they have global warming too. 
I'd just like to point out that I never thought Libby would be the one to get us back on topic, but now that she has, if any of you have any questions, like I have many questions now about this theory, here's Dr Tim O'Brien to answer your questions. <laughs> the first question this month is from Philip, and who says, It is often stated that the relative abundances of primordial elements is supporting evidence for the Big Bang. Please could you explain this, because intuitively, one might have thought that as the universe cooled, it would have passed through temperatures high enough to synthesise every element, even the heaviest elements. Yet we're told that theory predicts pretty well what we see, hydrogen, helium and traces of lithium formed in the Big Bang. Okay, yeah, so in fact, um, so Philip here is talking about, it's one of the, what we call the perhaps the pillars of the Big Bang, so it's one of the main pieces of evidence for the Big Bang as the, as the origin of the universe, and that's the creation of the light elements. So it's the creation of the, the lightest elements, as he says, hydrogen, helium, a little bit of lithium. Um, whereas we actually believe that the heavier elements are formed inside stars. Now, what he's referring to and the question he's asking is why isn't it the case that since we know that the Big Bang was really hot and presumably stuff was denser as well because everything was closer together in the, in the past, in the early universe, why wasn't it possible to make all these heavy elements in the Big Bang? Now, I sort of, I think it's probably worth having a little bit of a history lesson because I think it's an interesting story, <laughs> actually. I think we learn a lot from looking at the history of these things. Um, we'll go back to the, uh, to the 1940s and actually some physicists called George Gamow, uh, Ralph Alpha and Robert Herman. And they were actually working on what happened in the early universe. So, so by this time, we knew the universe was expanding back, you know, back in the early part of the 20th century. We, Hubble and his collaborators discovered that. So the idea that the universe was in this hot, dense state had come about by then. And what Gamow, George Gamow and, and, the, and these other guys were thinking about was they actually came up with this idea, which Philip is suggesting is maybe all the elements are made in those that early time. And, and how they're made is by just building them, sticking light elements together to make heavier elements. And in particular, they had an idea that you would uh, just add a neutron into a uh, into a, a lighter element and by, by adding in further neutrons and building these elements up you could make all the elements and they had a paper uh, that came out in 1948 and it was called the origin of chemical elements and that was the that was the theory that they were proposing um, funnily enough the paper was actually um, by uh, three authors alpha beta and gamma. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> so alpha, beta, gamma, basically. So the Greek, the Greek alphabet, the first three letters in the Greek alphabet. Now it turns out that I mentioned that alpha, um, Ralph Alpha and George Gamow were, were part of this team, but Hans Beta wasn't part of the team. He had, he was a physicist who had worked on nuclear reactions in stars, in particular the proton proton chain that you get in the sun. Um, but they added him in. Gamow suggested they just added his name in to make it funny. So they had a comedy paper name. So they had a comedy paper name. And strangely enough, when the paper was submitted to a journal, it was actually sent to Hans Beter as one of the referees. <laughs> <laughs> so you might have thought, oh, if he didn't have a sense of humour, he might have been very happy to see his name <laughs> appear on the paper. But apparently he was happy enough to have that happen. And he also thought the theory might be true. So he thought it might be handy that his name was on the paper as well. It's pretty good that he agreed with it. <laughs> he did, yeah. No, so, um, so that was sort of... You know, that was a serious suggestion that all the elements were made in the Big Bang, um, sort of in the late 1940s. 
when they continued to do more work on that idea, they actually realised it, it wouldn't work. And it's basically down to details of the way in which these um, neutron capture processes work. I mean, it's sort of, you can imagine the stuff being, um, these neutrons being added to atoms, but also at the same time the universe is expanding, the density is going down, the temperature is going down. You have to make all these things work together. And they couldn't, couldn't get it to, couldn't get that to work. And about the same time, there were others working on how elements were made in stars. So there's actually another paper which was is given in a sort of alphabetical name, um, which is B2FH, which is Burbridge, Burbridge, Fowler and Hoyle. Wow. <laughs> and the authors are actually Margaret Burbridge and Jeff Burbridge, who are married, uh, Willie Fowler and Fred Hoyle. And that came out in 1957, and it was called Synthesis of the Elements in Stars. And that basically gathered together a lot of work that had been done previously, plus their own work on how you can actually produce all the heavy elements inside stars, which is how we now understand things to be. Um, it turned out that, that Fowler um, got showed the Nobel Prize in 1983 for this, um, but you might ask a lot of people worried about why, for example, Fred Hoyle, who also did a lot of work on that, didn't also get the Nobel Prize. And one of the ideas suggested is, well, one idea is that people assumed that Willie Fowler was the main leader of the group, which apparently wasn't quite true. It was much more of a collaboration. But the other reason is that people think maybe it was because Fred Hoyle sort of mocked the Big Bang. So he was the one who came up with the name Big Bang originally, and he just said, you know, what a stupid idea, a, a Big Bang that <laughs> creates the universe. You know, it's this sort of uh, sort of mocking the whole thing. So it might have been that that meant that uh, he didn't get the uh, didn't get the Nobel Prize for it. Now, so you sort of ended up with a situation though where you had Gamow and stuff, and people had come up with this idea of creating the elements in the Big Bang. Then realised actually they couldn't create the heavy elements. They could create the light ones, but not the heavy ones. Around the same time, these others had come up with the correct theory for how the heavy elements are produced in stars. So it's all coming coming together there. And in fact, Alpha and Herman, so uh, Ralph Alpha and Robert Herman, who'd worked on the original Big Bang uh, elements, you know, creating the elements in the Big Bang theory, had actually, as part of that, predicted the existence of the cosmic microwave background. So wow. they they came up with that idea, and they said the universe should be filled with this radiation at a temperature of about five Kelvin. Um, they said. Now, interestingly, that's that prediction really sort of got forgotten by most people because it was sort of in the context of this theory of all the elements being produced in the Big Bang that had been shown to be wrong. And so people sort of forgot they'd actually predicted this thing called the cosmic microwave background. Um, Bob Dickey and others at uh, Princeton actually came up with, sort of re revived the idea, apparently independently. Um, and so they said, oh, there should be this radiation. Um, we're going to build a telescope to, to detect it. And unfortunately for them, just a few miles basically down the road, Arno Penzias and Robert <laughs> Wilson had already built a telescope to do something else entirely, mapping the sky. And with it, they actually discovered this cosmic microwave background. And Penzias and Wilson got the Nobel Prize in 1978 for that. And Ouch. poor old Bob Dickey <laughs> didn't get it. And people sort of forget that Alpha and Herman and people had predicted it as well some years before. Um, so it's quite a good story. I've actually just contributed a little uh, piece about it to a book about this. It's called the book called Litmus, Short Stories of Modern Science, which I'll put a link to on the website, which is well worth a read. It's not just that story. There's lots <laughs> of other stories as well. So it's quite good. And I guess just to finish off that point, um, you know, a bit, sorry, that was the history lesson finished. <laughs> um, uh, just to finish that off, um, this, 
cosmic microwave background nuclear synthesis is one of the great pieces of evidence for the Big Bang now. Um, basically, the hydrogen, most of the helium, and a small amount of lithium-7 is produced in the Big Bang. And you can actually use these models to predict how much of these elements, deuterium, helium-3, uh, helium-4, lithium-7, how much of these elements there should be. And you can compare it to observations and sort of independent observations of things like the spectra of quasars and also um, the uh, observations of the cosmic microwave background itself independently uh, agree, showing that this model looks to be looks to be a very good model, actually, and is a really good piece of evidence for the Big Bang. So the reason why we can't see anything bigger than those than lithium is because it's too cool. Um, too quickly for the triple alpha process to occur. Yeah, it's it's partly that. It's partly that the universe expands too fast and so the temperatures go down too quickly to make enough of them. But it's also partly because of the way in which they thought you could add neutrons into these elements doesn't work. There's sort of barriers to doing that along the way that stop them from getting this very neat and simple idea of just adding sort of one particle at a time and building the, the heavier things. It was more complicated than they originally realised. Can I ask you another question, which may or may not? <laughs> yes, okay, you may know it. If um, in stars it's the Schiffer-Alpha process that makes carbon from uh, yes. helium, how do the smaller nucleus like lithium and boron and beryllium form? Um, I actually think um, that most of the rest of the lithium and beryllium comes from uh, carbon atoms, carbon nuclei being broken down by cosmic ray collisions. So actually they're not, you know, they're not being necessarily produced directly in the nuclear reactions in stars, but they're actually, the carbon's being produced by triple alpha and then the carbon's being broken apart into the lighter elements. So I think that's the answer to that one. Fantastic. Thank you for answering my additional question in there. Um, our final question uh, comes from Freddie, who was wondering if there are any meteor showers to look forward to this month. Yeah, actually it should, so... It's a, it is a good question. It's always worth noting when there are meteor showers around. And I would say that you should, Freddie should listen into Ian's, Ian Morrison's, um, Night Sky This Month piece on the Jodcast. Cause Ian usually, I think, remembers to say what meteor showers might be coming up any given month. So that's certainly worth listening to. But just to answer his question, um, quickly, um, the next major meteor shower to come up is actually just, just about to happen. Um, which is on no, peak, expected to peak around November the 18th, and it's called the Leonids. Um, now, the Leonids actually, you know, meteor showers come from dust particles that are basically, a lot of them originate in the tails of comets. So they're basically dust that's ejected from a comet as it comes near the sun, melts some of the ice, leaves behind this trail of debris, and when the Earth passes through that trail, you get a lot of these dust particles crashing into the Earth's atmosphere, are burning up and we see them shoot across the sky as shooting stars. Um, Leonids actually come from a comet called Temple Tuttle. Um, very nicely, <laughs> named after two people, Temple and Tuttle. Um, and that last passed close to the sun in 1998. So it last sort of um, deposited a big amount of debris and dust into orbit um, some years ago now, back in 1998. And for several years after that, it was really a great meteor shower. And one of my best memories of meteor showers actually was sitting out in the back garden one November in a deck chair but wrapped up warm not with my shorts on um, and I did have a nice glass of wine actually but, um, oh, lovely. but sat in the back garden basically with a deck chair looking up at the time of the leaders and, and there were some spectacular ones I can't remember exactly what year it was it's probably it must have been around 2000 2001 so it probably wasn't long after this um, big 
you know, this perihelion passage close to the sun of Temple Tuttle. Um, and they were great. You know, they were, they were glowing at the front. They had smoky trails behind them. They looked exactly like lumps of stuff burning <laughs> up in the atmosphere, which is what you want. But actually, it's sort of been fading away, I guess, now. And uh, it's a bit hard to predict what we'll see. And that's because these, these dust streams are quite clumpy. So you get a lot of dust and then a gap, and it sort of depends exactly where these dust clumps are and where the Earth happens to be as to whether we'll get a good one or not. It's probably sort of going downhill, as it were, in terms of the number of meteors we might see. Um, also, the moon's quite bright um, for this coming one coming up, so it'll make the faint meteors hard to see. Still, November the 18th, probably worth looking out for. Um, coming up in December um, is probably the most reliable um, of the meteor showers. It's called the Geminids. Uh, peaks around December 13th, 14th. Um, again, the moon's quite bright, um, so the fainter ones will be hard to spot. But again, worth looking out for. Just to say the names of these meteor showers are the name of the constellation from which all the meteors appear to stream. So if you were to sort of stay out there and um, uh, sort of make a little sketch of the direction of the little shooting stars that you see and you drew that on the sky then they'd all appear to point back at um, uh, point back at the constellation of Gemini in the case of the Geminids it's just to do with the the relative velocity of the of the earth and the meteor streams that they all seem to come from that particular direction but the best thing to do to be honest is not go looking for Gemini not uh, worrying with Stellarium or something and, and think, oh, you know, where's Gemini? Where do I look? Best thing to do is really just look up. Um, and I suppose if there was a moon, then maybe look away from the moon because the moon will be bright, obviously. So look for a darker bit of sky um, on the off chance. There's a good story from the early days of Jodrell Bank, actually, where there was a, uh, an astronomer came to help with the, the radar observations of meteors that were the first thing that was done at Jodrell back in the late 1940s. And uh, one of the major pieces of, equip of equipment for those observations was a deck chair to sit in, <laughs> um, and also a piece of string, uh, because what was done was to sort of take, see a meteor stream and then hold up a piece of string against the sky in the right direction, and that gave you a, a quick measurement of how long the meteor trail was. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was before computers, obviously, so string and deck chair is very fundamental to meteor astronomy. Um, and then I suppose after the Geminids December... Um, have a nice Christmas, have a nice New Year, and then just after New Year, January 3rd, 4th, um, there's a meteor shower called the Quadrantids. Um, and the thing about the Quadrantids, in this case, the moon's going to be better, so the sky will probably be darker, um, so that would be good. Um, the disadvantage, I suppose, with the Quadrantids is um, that the, the number of meteors you expect to see for a lot of these showers extends over several days. So you've got a chance if you miss it one night, you've maybe got a chance the night before or the night after sort of thing. Um, with the quadrantids, there's quite a lot of meteors, quite an intense uh, shower typically, but it, that intense peak only lasts a few hours. Um, and you can't exactly predict when it's going to happen, but probably the night of the 3rd and the 3rd or 4th of January. But I suppose if the weather was bad or something and it only lasts a few hours, you might be unlucky and you might miss it. But it's sort of worth looking out for them. We'll stick a few um, <laughs> web links on the on the website for places you might want to find out more about these things. Brilliant. Well, Freddie, good luck looking for all these meteorites, and I think I'll look out for them too. I need to get a deck chair now, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to say thank you to Philip and Freddie for emailing in some questions. And if you want to send in more questions for Tim to answer, you can do so by the webpage.
Thanks for that, Tim. And now we get on to the feedback part of the show. So, Libby, I think you're up first. Yes. On the forum, there has been lots of interesting posts going on. So at the start of the show, the witty comment was related to some Astro Food hashtags that have been going on on Twitter. And Reese Pie has started a thread about on the forum. And some other ones that we didn't include was Hubble and Squeak, which I think is my favourite. <laughs> uh, and there's also a very long list there on the forum. So if anyone else wants to make their own Astro Food puns, please do post them because they're awesome and I'm really loving them. My only suggestion was Ice Cream Sun Day. Ooh, that was pretty bad. Definitely not as good as Hubble and Squeak. That's no. genius whoever thought that one up. Also on the forum, following on from the last episode and the interviews of Sea Stars, Rapid Eye is saying that T. Lyra is in a great position to observe, and this is one of the finest examples of a red carbon star visible to amateur telescopes. And Rapid Eye can catch it in his 12 by 36 IS Beanox binoculars, but a 4 inch telescope is where it really starts to shine. There's also a finder chart on the forum if anyone wants to have a look at these awesome carbon stars in our galaxy. We've also had an email from Neil Hickling, who visited Jodrell Bank recently with his 14-year-old son. He says he thought that the telescope was awesome, and he says that he knows that we like postcards, but thought that one of the Lovell telescope would be a bit postmodern. He says he loves the podcast and keep up the good work. But I think he should have totally sent us a postcard of the Lovell. I would have been happy with a postcard of the Lovell. Neil, I think you're going to have to go back to Jodro again and send us a postcard. On Twitter, thank you, as always, for all the retweets and follow Fridays. We've had a few comments from when we tweeted about the road trip video. Um, sorry to make All in the Gutter very jealous, because they've apparently only visited three of the dishes and we saw them all. So, ha ha. Also, Astro Stewie, who is Stuart Ayres, who we have interviewed before on the Jogcast, said, all seven telescopes in a day, that is above and beyond. Not quite sure what we are above and beyond, but we are above and beyond. The Call of Duty. Okay. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Rammer666 said that they have been listening to the Jogcast by sending it from their iPad to their Apple TV Beat That For Geeky so if anyone can beat that for geeky please let us know and congratulations are in order to Astrondrew because he has Babysick on his Jogcast t-shirt so congratulations not for the Babysick but obviously for your beautiful baby girl we also have some comments on Facebook the first one's from CJ Brown He's looking forward to tonight's episode and also thinks that we're awesome. Uh, I think we are awesome, so thank you for that. And Ian Smith has left a comment saying he's listening on the train once it has squeezed down the East Coast internet. An excellent addition, he says. Christina, is that your dad? Yes, it is. Hi, Christina's dad. Hi, dad. He's probably listening. (laughs) (laughs) We've actually had some feedback on YouTube, some comments on the road trip video. So thank you to Malithion2001 and No Swanky, and also Russell Jenkins Fern. This is my favourite comment. Well done. I see they are well built and can resist dinosaur attack. So yes, yes they can. If anyone doesn't get that, go watch the video. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jogcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thank you to Silka Britson, Lucio Mayer and Philip Podsielowski for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman, Tim O'Brien and Christina Smith. The producer was Jen Gupta. So until next time... Jod on. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.